0: Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb. And on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Thank you, Soraya Darabi, for the intro to today's guest, Sarah Kuntz, Managing Director of Clio Capital. Clio Capital is an early-stage VC fund focused on the pre-seed and seed stages. Some of their investments include 42Birds, Athena, and Love Wellness. Sarah is also a contributing editor at Marie Claire Magazine, and previously served as a senior advisor to Bumble. In this episode, we talk about her investment criteria, how to increase diversity in venture, and current state of VC during COVID. Without further ado, here's Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. So... Talk to me about the beginning. What initially attracted you to startups, venture capital, and investing in consumer-facing companies in particular?
1: Yeah. So I got my start in tech in college, actually. I was a campus rep for Apple and so worked directly for Apple HQ and at Michigan State University and saw really quickly. I was always somebody who, you know, I learned how to code and it was not my thing. I was far too extroverted to be an engineer, maybe an engineer manager, but I didn't know about that job then. So I... I, I knew I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in business. And at the time, I didn't really think of, you know, tech as a place. There, there wasn't a lot of consumer business, right? I, I always loved fashion. I always loved retail, very much consumer-driven person. And there just wasn't a lot of pre-iPhone, pre-App Store, pre-Facebook. You could, I guess, work at MySpace, right? Or maybe AOL. That was about it on the consumer internet side, it felt like. So I did never think of it as a career that I would go into until I worked at Apple. And that kind of opened my eyes to, hey, there's all sorts of job functions within the tech company and then I ended up at Chanel after college and worked there and you know really interesting consumer company to work for and then it was 2008 and so not the best time to be in luxury and so then when I left there I decided I wanted to be in startups and and I really haven't looked back since and so work as a product and biz dev person at a lot of early stage startups I've been a venture investor at really big funds now in venture investor at a very small fund that I read myself and have, have done you know I'm a contributing editor at Marie Claire magazine so have done lots of stuff around both consumer and investing ever since I got into this back in 2009.
0: Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like you always had that attraction towards consumer even throughout college. That's awesome. Um, So tell me how Clio Capital came together.
1: I had been an investor at a very big fund. I was an analyst uh, at a $1.7 billion venture fund. And then after that, I started a company in the sports and fitness space, ran that for a few years, did angel investing as a scout with Sequoia um, while I was doing that. And when I was thinking, you know, that company uh, ran out of money and as I was shutting it down was thinking about what to do next. I was looking at bigger funds, didn't really see anything that was a great fit. And then, you know, an investor friend of mine said, well, why don't you start a fund? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll invest. And, and so decided to do that. And so that was kind of the genesis of Cleo. And we're a generalist firm. I invest in kind of two main focus areas. One is sort of the future of income, which has a lot to do with consumer in that, you know, every Etsy seller and Uber driver and Instacart shopper, you know, they they are making money often, you know, most of, if not all of their money that they make outside of a regular kind of W-2, nine to five job. And all of our lives as consumers would be greatly lacking without those kinds of services. So I invest in, in companies, you know, that help people make money in that way. And then also help people who make money in that way manage it, right? Because if you have to get a paycheck, then you probably also have health insurance and you don't have, you have to sign one paper once a year and you get all of that. Whereas if you're a freelancer, you know, you don't, you have to figure out taxes on your own health insurance, kind of everything you're going to get your next client or sell your next sale all on your own. So invest in that space. And then the other space I invest in mostly is called complicated consumer. And so complicated consumer, I always say, picture your kitchen table, right? And your kitchen counter and all of those bills and everything that are stacking up and all of those things that you don't want to deal with, but you as a consumer do have to deal with. So I don't invest as much in the kind of sexy part of consumer, right? I love suitcases and face creams probably much more than the next person, but but I buy those things. I don't really invest in that space. The space I invest in are the things that we're not as excited to spend our money on as consumers. So estate planning, divorce, legal stuff, student loan debt, HSAs, FSAs, 401ks, you know, mental health, all of these things, finance, insurance, legal stuff that we still are very much consumers and individuals when we have to to buy them or interact with them. It's just a lot less fun than going to buy a new dress.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, especially on the complicated consumer side, I mean, I see the need for sure in, um, in both sectors on the complicated consumer side, though, these are obviously things that consumers obviously don't want to do. So it's a real pain point. So I definitely can sense the opportunity there. Walk me through a little bit about your your due diligence process and your check size.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, for me, I invest in pre-seed and pre-seed means that the due diligence, there's not always a lot. There's usually a ton of diligence you can do on the space. And there's always diligence you can do on the people, right? Are these the right people? Are they good people? You know, do I, I'll never forget once I was doing diligence on a founder and it turned out that he'd been arrested for basically running a a small Ponzi scheme. And so I didn't invest because I didn't feel like that was going to be a, a high caliber founder in terms of their moral compass. So there are those kinds of diligences you do what you normally can't really do at pre-seed, right, is the kind of digging in to learn about the company, because the company has probably existed less than a year, right? And so in terms of like revenue, they don't have any growth. If you go from zero to 100, that's 100% growth, right? But that's not a very big number. And so it's it's a lot of feeling through you know, why do I believe in this market? Why do I believe in this opportunity? Why I believe? Why do I believe this is the right approach for the opportunity? And then why do I believe this is the right team? Who else is doing it? Are they going to do it better? Do they have some sort of competitive advantage? Like why them? And then you sort of align those things. And then you look at the company and you say, well, what have they started to build so far, right? But normally they haven't started to build anything. For me, that's a bit of a red flag because you can always, particularly on the more consumer side, right? You can always put up a free landing page or an Instagram page to start getting interest and signups. Like you can always do something. If you're an engineer, you can start coding. So when there's really, you know, if you're a designer, you can build a prototype right? So if there's literally nothing, I'm generally a little bit scared off because I think that if you can't get started with no money, then me giving you money it's not going to get you started. It's just gonna kind of get burned. So I want to see a little bit of that, but really it comes down to, the founders and why I think these founders and the opportunity and why I think this is the right opportunity. And I think in pre-seed investing, a lot of it too is is falling in love a little bit with the founder, with the opportunity, with the market and just feeling like, you know, there's something special here. And so that's definitely a part of it as well. And then in terms of check size, my check size varies, you know, I'll go as low as 50,000, I'll go as high as, as 500,000. And a lot of that has to do with the round dynamics, right? So if I find a founder really early and I really love what they're doing, I can go bigger and I might be be the majority of their round. If I find them through another friend who's investing as well, and there's only a little bit of the round left, and I'm still excited about it, then I still might invest, but it'll be a smaller chunk.
0: Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, one of the things that I'm interested in, especially at like the pre-seed level, where you really are investing in really the founders since it's pre-product typically, or rather pre-revenue. Are you finding it harder to find conviction within founders since you have to meet them via Zoom and online?
1: No, I mean, I think that for me, I had already been doing that. I was already willing to do that. I think that of all of the sort of gaining factors or, or all of the kind of reasons you have to or not invest, making a huge one of them just be, you know, the geographic proximity and the calendar openings of a particular founder is probably a miss right? And so I think one, it's about understanding what's important and what's not, right? And so for me with founders, when I first see a deck, um, a pitch deck, you know, people are always like, oh, can I introduce you to my friend? They're so great, blah, blah, blah. And I always say, send me the deck, right? And the reason is, if you're really great, do I want to be friends with you? Sure. Do I want to, you know, be your roommate or marry you? Maybe. Do I want to invest in you just because I like hanging out with you? No. That's a terrible, terrible way to make friends. And and the RO or the the customer acquisition cost of friends, right, should not be, should not have to be a venture check. So for me, it's much less, you know, I need to think a founder is smart and I need to think a founder is high integrity. I don't need to be best friends with the founder. And so I think of it kind of like getting surgery, right? If somebody came to you and said, hey, you need brain surgery, you say, okay. And then would they? Would you want to pick your brain surgeon based on the fact that you think they can do the job really well? or how if you guys went to the same school, right? No matter what school you went to, you want the best brain surgeon, not somebody who sort of has stuff in common with you. So for me, I'm making a lot of those decisions already, right? I'm I'm making a lot of those decisions based on what your deck says, what I see when I google you, and then I want to meet you or right then and be that through through Zoom or you know back back in the before in person to get to know you a little bit better, but even then it's more for things to screen out rather than screen in right? So if you as a founder are super, as head founders who are really rude, either to me or when talking about other companies or, and I don't mean saying, you know, oh, we think we're better than our competitor because XYZ. I mean, the kind of people who are just truly kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, talking shit, right? About other companies or investors. And you're like, wow, okay. Like, I don't even know you. This does not feel like you're going to be successful. Those are the kinds of things that I'm looking to screen out, right? Some of my founders, I'm, like, really good personal friends with, others, like... I'm not as great personal friends with, but that doesn't mean that they're not still great founders as long as we can communicate effectively. And I really believe in what they're doing and how they're doing it.
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks for that. It's really interesting to note that you really haven't been seeing a big effect change when talking to founders online. On this question in particular, I feel like it's been like the most wide ranging answer from investors. Some investors are very comfortable with meeting founders online and it's been really not an issue to invest in founders when you haven't met them. And then other investors are a lot more hesitant. Wanted to know as well about how you're thinking about the speed of deals. You know, I had on Ezra Galston from Starting Line, a seed fund based out of Chicago, and they're saying that the speed at which deals are getting done now is almost at pre-COVID levels. And he's just amazed about how fast everything is moving. How are you thinking about the early stage landscape during these times in COVID? And are you seeing something similar?
1: I think deals are still moving. You know, when you take away the need to physically go places, right, and you take away to some extent the ability to physically go places, you do have a lot more time to actually execute. And I think the distinction I would put there when it comes to deals being done is that the top of funnel is still hard for some people, right, who aren't comfortable not meeting in person, all of that. But once you decide to do a deal, there's usually, you know, if you're a pre seed, it might only be a week or so of back and forth on legal terms and diligence. And, and then, you know, you get it signed and, and wired in a series A or something, it might take a month or two. But the difference is that before it would take, call it a month. But then if you're on vacation for one week of that month and then the, the lawyer's on vacation and then the other person's on vacation, right? Or then somebody's out of town, like it all of a sudden adds up to the point where that might be six weeks instead of four weeks just because of logistics right now logistics are sort of flat and there's no well let's catch up in two days in person it's hey you know I I think and and I don't know if this is good or bad I'm single I live alone like it's a lot different for me but I find that a lot of people are more willing to even you know do calls on weekends and stuff because it's not like hey it's the weekend I'm going to this great you know music concert I'm going you know skiing I'm going whatever it's the weekend and I'm, I'm still you know sticking pretty close to home and so so to that, and I think that the cadence, once you decide to do a deal, I think the speed of execution is a little bit faster. But I think for a lot of investors, particularly later stage investors, starting to get a deal done is a lot slower.
0: And so you're saying on like more like the Series A side and then the later stage size too, getting the deals done during COVID has been slower. And if you relate that to like the precedency, is that right?
1: So I think that getting to a yes is probably a little bit slower for a lot of people because of the virtual nature of things. I think that once you get to a yes, getting the deal actually done where the money's in the bank, all the paperwork has been signed is probably a little bit faster.
0: Got it. No, that makes sense. Thank you. What's your advice for companies that might be located in secondary and tertiary markets that are currently trying to fundraise?
1: I mean, I think this is the best time ever for that because it doesn't matter if you're two blocks away or 2,000 miles away, right? It's still hard to invest in other countries for a lot of U.S. fund managers because we just, you know, our funds are not set up to do that. But there's never been a time where it matters less where someone is.
0: Got it. Now, do you believe that, and, and this is another kind of question that has come up on the show, that you can build like a venture scalable business located in like a tertiary market, for example?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're everywhere, right? So so to say no would be to say that, you know, like politics in, in Salt Lake City doesn't exist, right? And last time I checked, it existed and exited to the tune of $8 million. So it seems to be possible, right? And I always think that's kind of a funny question because that's like asking, you know, do you believe that cats exist? Like you can ask me if I like cats or not. right? Which I will not answer because I don't want to offend anyone. But of course, cats exist, right? And my feelings about cats do not change whether or not they exist as animals in the world. And to me, you know, the question of, oh, can you build a tech company in X? The answer is yes, right? You look at Estonia, which most Americans could not find on a map. A lot of people listening are going to be like, I thought Estonia was a city in Missouri. No, Estonia is a very small country in Europe, and they're one of the most digitally native countries in the world because they've had massive tech exits. So, So you could build a company anywhere and talents evenly distributed as as people are very fond in this industry of saying, it's just that that historically opportunities haven't been. So certainly I've always invested outside of Silicon Valley the same way I've always invested inside of Silicon Valley. And if more investors during COVID are, are starting to see the value in that, great. I welcome them to join me.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. I know like another big debate, this is especially geared towards, you know, founders that really don't come from an investor network. And a big debate has been the warm intro, whether some investors have had on the show say you need a warm introduction. Other investors say no, a cold outreach, I will certainly respond to what's your advice for founders that are looking to fundraise that don't have an investor network and their approach on this subject?
1: The vast, vast majority of founders don't have an investor network, right? Like even if, if you work at Google or something, how many employees does Google have? 40,000. And the idea that you actually know a ton of investors is just super not likely. And even if you do, the idea that they're in the right, so say you got your MBA at Stanford, right? Lots and lots of VCs come through Stanford, but even then lots and lots, right, is maybe there were 10 in your class, which maybe means you know, and, and like certainly that's like nothing, But say that you didn't know three of them, you didn't like two of them, and then two others aren't in your industry, now you're down to like three. Right, and so there are certainly are people like me where I had worked in venture before I started a company, but that's not the case for 99.9% of people, right? Regardless of race, gender, where you live, anything, and even us, right? You and I aren't old friends; we've never met each other before. You cold emailed me, I think, and I responded, right? And the reality is that's a really doable way to get to people. And so I certainly take cold intros. um, Like I was saying before, referrals are really important to me if I'm going to like be your friend or roommate they're not important to me if I'm going to invest in you um, because I'm going to find out the things I need to know based on my diligence, not based on kind of a third-party opinion. But that being said, I think that if people are concerned about warm intros, if people feel like their fundraise would go better if they had warm intros, then you know my advice is great, go warm things up. Everyone right now is stuck at home. Everyone is spending too much time on the internet. So go and follow somebody on Twitter or Instagram and start, you know, I've met so many people on Twitter just by talking to them there, right? Or if a VC is like, hey, thinking about, if you have a ed tech startup, right? And a VC is tweeting about, every VC right now is tweeting about, like, what do I do with my kids, right? So then, like, go go through and start following a bunch of VCs and look at their questions about education and respond to them and say, hey, you know, I saw this article, thought you'd find it really interesting that talks about, you know, how to balance screen time with distance learning. And if you do that a few times over the course of a couple of weeks and then you show up at a, a talk or something that VC is doing on Zoom and ask them a question, then they're going to, like, see that. They're going to feel like they know you. They're they're highly likely if you tweet at them and say, hey, you know, I'd love to get your advice on the startup I'm working on. They're highly likely to respond and say, great, you know, DM me, we'll set up a time to talk. Right. Or maybe they respond and say, actually don't invest in that sector. And that's fine too. But there's such an ability in this moment to warm things up where you don't have to go break into the Silicon Valley country club. You can just go on Twitter. You can see where they're talking and see which panels they're on. I, you know, am an investor in a company called Lunch Club and that's their whole business model, right? It's, um, I'll, I'll give you a link for the show notes, but it is literally an AI service where you can go on. It's free. You get an invite, which, which everyone listening to this will have from the show notes. And you go on and you sign up and you can say, hey, you know, I want to meet with investors or I want to meet with potential co-founders and potential customers and their AI algorithm will find the people who are perfectly suited for you. And you can meet with people from all over the world. And so when you have tools like that at your disposal, when there are all of these things, particularly in this moment, it's hard to imagine, even if you don't already have that network, that you can't build it pretty quickly. And the reality is, Very, very, very few people raise their first entire venture round just from people they're friends with. It tends to be people who are investing in a relevant space, and you can find those people online, and you can get in front of them, and you can warm things up, and then you don't have to worry about a cold intro.
0: First of all, so happy that you mentioned Lunch Club. I use it every week. I do like three or four meetings every week and I've met some great, great people on it. So Oh yeah, awesome. I love that. Awesome. Yeah. Love Lunch Club. And yeah, I think that's extremely well said. I think now's the time in terms of Twitter and you know, have all these honestly different resources online not only to DM or to get in touch with investors, but also know what they actually invest in, right? So actually figuring out if your company could be relevant to them, which I think is really important. And of course, personalizing that email or outreach.
1: Honestly, I don't even care if the email is personalized. Like it, it, one thing I will say is I hate when people, when non-founders email me, Like, I started to see more like heads of biz dev and I'm like, you are pre-seed. You've, like, and here's the thing, I am not going to break into your house before you email me like minority report style to see whether or not you hit send so if it is in fact your head of this dev Who's logged into your email account? I won't know. But if you, as the pre-seed, like aren't owning fundraising, most founders own fundraising all the way through. Even like when you IPO that roadshow, right? Even now, Mark Zuckerberg is the one who sits on the quarterly, you know, earnings calls, which is him owning fundraising so that investors keep investing. You know, public market investors keep investing. So if you at the pre-seed level are offloading that, it makes me really nervous, and I'd have to really love the company to feel comfortable. Even responding, you know, even taking a meeting, but I don't care. The people are like, hey, Sarah, I saw that you blah, blah, blah. Like, yes, great. You did a five second Google of me, like you get a cookie, whatever. I don't care about that personalized, like meaningless blurb at the top. What I do care about is a paragraph that says, hey, here's who I am. Here's what the company does. Here's what we're raising. And here's a link to the deck that, or the deck's attached, like that's what I care about because I want to dig into the need of the company, right? I love that some people have great networking skills, but that's not what I'm investing in you for. I'm investing in your company. So like in the immortal words, right? Of God, now I'm going to blink on the name, but Tom Cruise, right? Show me the money. I want to see your deck. I want to understand what you're building and really, really quickly, I'm going to know whether or not that's something that I want to dig into, or if it's just for whatever reason, not a fit for me.
0: That's a really great point, especially what you're looking for. Just kind of send you the information in a compact way so you can look over it, whether that's decks, metrics, or what you're building. No, that's awesome. I know we discussed your two areas of focus. Let's dive in a little deeper, if that's all right, the future of income and a complicated consumer. I'd imagine that both of these big kind of pillars that you invest in, that they've both accelerated during COVID, but would love to know just a few examples of within these two sectors, if that's all right, how COVID has really affected both.
1: For what I invest in, right, the reality hasn't made a huge impact. I don't invest in a ton of direct-to-consumer, which means that while my personal buying of party dresses and high heels is sadly reduced, I don't invest in that space, and so it doesn't really impact how I invest. I don't invest in, you know, real estate or or hospitality or nightclubs, and so it hasn't made a huge difference there, right? And those are really the things that are impacted. And certainly, some of my companies are doing really well. One of my very, 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 very—I think it's actually the only exception to my direct to consumer investing rule right now is a company called Hill House Home. They sell home goods, right? So bedding, sheets, all of that. They also sell nap dresses, which are kind of like the modern nightgowns, right? As you can expect, all of a sudden, when everybody got locked up in their houses in March, they started to look around and realize their old sheets from college and wearing like an old t-shirt they got free at a conference to bed every night was maybe not like living their best life. And so that company's done really well. And so that's my only consumer bet, direct-to-consumer peer play. And it's worked out really well because that's exactly what people need in this moment. But a lot of my other companies, you know, they're certainly doing well during COVID, but that will also fade, right? So if you are like Uber Eats is not one of my companies, but as an example, right, Uber rides are way down, Uber Eats is way up. Once as COVID is eventually gone, then those two things will probably kind of go back to where they were in, in reverse. And and so there is a COVID bump for some companies, but it's for the most part not necessarily going to last. But because I invest so early, the companies that seem to have been hardest hit, if you're a massive company like a Google, Facebook, you have so much money, you have so much infrastructure, you have so much you have such financial protection that it would, it's going to take probably a year to two years, by which point this should be over, um, before you would really see, hey, we're falling off a cliff, right, in terms of, of being in serious trouble and if you're really early if it's just you and your co-founder working out of one of your apartments and then now instead of working out of an apartment in a big city you're moving somewhere where the rent is cheaper or you're moving home you know to live with parents or, or relatives or whatever and not paying rent at all you're actually almost in a better position right because all of a sudden it's cheaper to hire people it, maybe it's a little bit easier to raise money because you have more kind of attention of, of investors particularly if you're outside of Silicon Valley your personal burn rate is way 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 lower. So for the really early stage companies, there was definitely an adjustment and shock like it was for all of us, but it basically consists of calling your WeWork sales rep and saying, hey, we're moving out. The companies that have been disproportionately negatively impacted, I think, are the kind of series C companies where you're not super profitable yet. You're not sitting on loads of cash. You still need to go out and raise more rounds of funding or sell yourself an M&A activity and you know, mergers and acquisitions, people buying companies has stopped basically 100% right now. And it's really hard to get somebody to write you a $50 million or $100 million Series C check if you've never met them, right? Where it's a little bit easier to write a $500,000 check if you've never met somebody. And you have this entire structure org chart that's designed for, in offices that you probably have five or 10 year leases on, that's designed for a very particular kind of business that is now ground to a halt for two years, but you don't have two years of cash cushion. So like the growth stage companies have really, really, really been impacted super hard for the most part, really, really early stage has been okay if not doing well. And like really, really late, like publicly traded companies are okay.
0: How I was thinking about it was just in terms of like the future of income category, or large category, since so many people have been out of work and whatnot, that I would have thought that, you know, you give the example of like the Etsy seller that I would imagine that there was more people becoming freelancers or doing, you know, engagingly a passionate company that might help for some of your investments in those types of categories, if that makes sense.
1: So to talk about the categories, right, instead of kind of the impacts on specific companies, talk about the categories broadly, right? Certainly both of my categories, they feel more vital than ever, right? So if before you kind of drove, Uber, you know, hey, it's it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'll make a couple extra 100 bucks. And now you got laid off and, you know, delivering Uber Eats is, is how you're making ends meet, right? Then then it becomes much more vital, right? If you were a VP at a big company in real estate and now they're laid a bunch of people off and now you say, "Well, I guess I'll be I'll, I'll consult for people. Well, do I need an LLC? What does that look like?" Those questions become much more vital and the way that we think of non-W2 income kind of 1099 income, all of that goes from being sort of a nice to have to like a really important, like life line, it might be the only way you're making money. And so that that category, you know, as a category has certainly grown in importance. And generally speaking, I think it takes investors a few months to see what new companies are there, right? Because if you started a company in April, because of one of these trends that was started because of COVID, you're probably just now four months in starting to think about going out to fundraise, right? And that's when it would get on my radar. But we are certainly seeing some of that in the complicated consumer category, the same thing, right? We have. Over 170,000 Americans who died during COVID, that's 170,000 people who have families next of kin, estates to settle, debts to settle, all of that. If you were like a relatively healthy 27-year-old who just aged out of your parents' health insurance and you don't have a full-time job and you were kind of like, eh, health insurance, whatever, I'll figure it out. All of a sudden, it feels much more vital than before where you might say, well, whatever, I just like won't get hit by a car and I'll be fine. Now you're like, no, literally, if somebody frees on me wrong, I'm going to need health insurance. And so there's those things that, that we focus on. Student loan debt's another category, right? Being shut in with your partner has led to, to elevated divorce levels. That's something. So certainly for my categories writ large, um, I think all of us are spending far less time thinking about nice-to-haves right now. Or we might be daydreaming about nice-to-haves, but we're, we're spending far less time kind of in our day-to-day worried about nice-to-haves, where's our next vacation? And we're spending a lot more time worried about our mental health, our health insurance, you know, how we're going to make money. And those are all the things I invest in. And, and so that is certainly, the timing has, you want to be proven right, but I would give anything to not be proven right in quite this way. But it is what it is. And so this is what we have. And, and we're seeing Everything that I've been talking about and investing in for the past couple of years has come into like very, very, very painful light of like, yes, you were right.
0: What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital?
1: I think, and this is obvious, but I want to see more diversity in terms of who's investing. And, you know, we know that the diversity drives better returns in venture capital or in all investing and in all company building. And so there's certainly a moral argument there, particularly in this country. But the reality is I'm a capitalist. It's literally my job. My, my job isn't to help companies. My job is not even find companies. My job is to have investors give me money and I give them more money back. And if the best way to do that, if we know that data shows us that the best way to drive returns is to have more diversity. I'm not doing my job correctly if I don't have more diversity. And my fund has a lot of it, but a lot of other funds don't. And so if you look at multi-billion dollar funds that are wildly successful, but don't have a diverse teamer on the table, the reality is they would be 30% more wildly successful if they did.
0: I 100% agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, when I asked Soraya this question, what she said, it's also diversity to really see real change, which I think that you alluded to. also has to start from the top and from the LPs about wanting to invest in more diverse funds and also have that trickle down and invest in more founders as well.
1: Yeah. And we know that the data shows that the, the best indicator of what your portfolio will look like is what the investors look like. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, literally what the what the investors look like. Race and gender of investors is the biggest indicator of race and gender of their portfolio. And that's not like a, oh, white dudes only invest in white dudes. That means that I'm more likely to invest in Black women and an Indian man is more and less likely to invest in Indian men. And that just is, right? And so, you know, we can kind of argue the nature versus nurture. How do we change this implicit bias? What do we do? What does that mean? All day long, because I have nothing but time. It's COVID. But the reality is that if that's what's happening, then the easiest way to fix some of these things is say, okay, I know that if, if Sarah, you as a Black woman are more likely to invest in Black women... And so the people that you have on your team, if they are all black women, then you're going to deeply over index and investing in black women, which would be great. But if you want a diverse portfolio that's not just black women, then you need to bring in other people around the table. And if you bring in other people around the table, the odds are statistically that the people you invest in are going to look like those people. So if everybody's sort of investing in their mini-me, then if you get a bunch of different people around the table and it looks like a Benetton ad, then your portfolio will be diverse, even if no individual investor is being particularly diverse in their investing.
0: I completely agree with that. And I love that. If you have a diverse investing team, then that makes sense that in terms of the founders, it would be a very, very diverse portfolio. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: One book that inspired me personally, I don't know if inspired is the right word, but it's like, I think a complete must read for everyone. A book called Attached. And it's about like attachment styles and sort of why people are either sort of anxiously attached, which means like, you know, they're, they're really like, they, you know, want to be close to you, they want a lot of information, they want to always know what's going on, or a little bit more avoided, which in personal or professional settings, right, might mean they kind of ghost you or they sort of pull back or they're like not that eager to like jump into deals or whatever it is. And it's just super fascinating because it kind of helps you know how to deal with people. And then another book that I really, really like that also is kind of both uh, personal and professional is a book by Brené Brown called Dare Greatly. And it's about kind of, she's a, a fear and vulnerability researcher, but it's really about how you have to be willing to be somewhat vulnerable and in order to kind of take risks and do great things. And if you're not taking risks, then the things you're doing are probably not particularly inspiring and great just because you're probably not getting far enough out of your comfort zone to make that happen
0: these are excellent. I'll certainly add them to my reading list for sure. I haven't read either of them, but also excited to add them to on our website. We have a reading list as well with all the books that prior guests have recommended and no one yet has recommended these two. So i really excited to add them. What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it?
1: My most recent investment that we've announced is a company called Needhop. And that is a really cool company that's very much kind of in the, the future of income bucket. And what that does you go onto the app and you know, you could go on and you could say, Hey, anybody can book an appointment with me for a hundred dollars for a 45 minute appointment to talk to me, or you know, whatever the price is, you can set your own price, you know, to talk to me about how to get started podcasting. Or, you know, say that you, you know, moved outside of the country and you lived outside of the country for a while, right? How to move to Spain, how to become a surfer, whatever it is that you have knowledge of that is stuff that right now, if I reached out to you in a month and said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast, you'd say, oh, Okay. And you you know, we've chatted and we've met each other, so you'd be helpful, but there are a hundred other people in the world who would probably pay you to have that conversation, but they don't know you and they can't get to you, right? And so it's a really cool platform where people can go on and just sort of monetize their life experiences and also kind of gatekeep, right? So a lot of times people want to pick your brain about something, I and mean, I'm sure you have this all the time where people are like, oh, I was thinking about starting a podcast, so you spend like an hour on the phone with them. And then, you know, they never start a podcast, right? And you kind of don't know them and it wasn't really a great use of your time, but like it was kind of awkward to say no. And in this way, you know, if it's not worth a hundred dollars of their time, then if it's not worth a hundred dollars to them, then it's probably definitely not worth your time.
0: I love that. Wow. I might actually need to go on there. That's awesome. Um, uh, Thank you so much for sharing. So my final question is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: You know, I think for me, the number one thing is just like be really prepared. And there's so many obstacles when you go out to fundraise, when you start a company, everything's hard. But the one thing that no matter... Where you live or who you know or your race or your gender or any obstacle, the one thing that nobody can kind of take away from you is your your ability to be prepared, right? So know everything about your market. Know when you get into like later stages of a VC, know a lot about pitching them. Just be really, really aware, right? On my LinkedIn, I, you know, say like the first thing you see when you look at my LinkedIn is that I say, I only accept LinkedIn requests from people I know. Please do not try to pitch me on LinkedIn. Go, you know, pitch me via via my website, leocap.com, where I really literally have a button called pitch us where people can pitch me every day. Somebody tries to pitch me on LinkedIn. And it's not the end of the world, except for the fact that I'm like, It's just such a headache. And like, I asked you to do one thing. I didn't say I don't take warm and cold intros. I love cold intros. You can literally pitch me anywhere else. The only place I ask you not to pitch me is LinkedIn. So if you can't literally read that, right? If you can't literally do that and like go through the channel that I've asked for, then I'm a little bit concerned about what our working relationship would look like because you don't seem like you're like listening to me. And if you're not gonna listen to me, then like I probably can't add a lot of value. And if I can't add a lot of value, then like I'm probably not gonna going to invest, right? So so those are the kinds of things like just being, you know, I call it be unimpeachably good, right? Just be really, really solid, be really, really good, be really prepared, pay attention and be really professional and really know what you're doing. And there's resources like this or endless amounts of great podcasts, books, blogs, Twitter accounts, Instagram accounts, everything, right? Where you can get all of this information for free online to just be really, really, really good. And I think that that like just absolute mastery of what it is that you're trying to do is something that people kind of overlook sometimes because there's such an emphasis in our industry focused on speed, right? Somebody pitched me the other day and they're like, you know, we just started working on this three weeks ago. And I'm like, that's not good, right? Like imagine your friend came to you and said, hey, I got married. We just met three weeks ago. Isn't that great? And you'd be like, wow, as my dad would say, unbelievable, unbelievably good or unbelievably bad, but unbelievable. Unbelievable right so you don't want to be unbelievable you want to be incredible and so really like spend time know what you're doing know it in and out and upside down and that's just going to get you a lot further even if you have to work harder up front we all know founders who are you know they can raise really easily they have a good story a flashy story we just started this 3 seconds ago and then 6 months later they're gone right because it's kind of easy come easy go and so the more you prepare and the more you know what you're doing i think that the the better outcome you're going to have
0: I love that certainly one thing that stuck with me was you don't have to be unbelievable you want to be incredible which I I absolutely love and I think as well in terms of pitching it kind of goes back to as well I guess what we were talking about before knowing also where an investor maybe likes to hang out per se like whether that's pitching to you via a website on Clio versus LinkedIn but also you're making it very very clear for people that that's how you like founders to pitch to you so it's also being aware of that as well as a founder Sarah thank you so much for your time this was a lot of fun yeah
1: this was a lot of fun thank you yeah.
0: and there you have it it was really great chatting with sarah please follow her on twitter at sarah kunst if you could please leave a review on the apple podcast app as it helps other folks find it that would really be helpful if you have a question you'd like to hear vcs or founders answer on the show you can dm me and follow me on twitter at mike gelb you can also follow for episode announcements at consumervc for all episodes please visit the consumervc.com thanks again for listening folks and please stay safe